Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, sometimes it is hard to convince a seven-year-old that he's not going to die. A couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of taking my son Theodore to Camp Tadmore for a father-son weekend called Sons of Thunder, and I took him onto the giant rope swing, which is this amazing thing, a steel cable suspended between trees. They harness you up, you climb a 10 or 12-foot ladder, and then they, they... hook you in and take the ladder down and you're dangling there between heaven and earth and then they hoist you up 65, 75 feet up in the air and it's just you and a quick release lever that you pull to send you on the best swing of your life. But like I said, it's hard to convince a seven-year-old and some older folks that you're not about to die. And so as we're waiting in line, I'm trying to encourage my son who's never been on anything like this before. I'm like, hey, Theodore, you see that steel cable up there? He's like, yeah. I'm like, that cable can hold 10,000 pounds. And I think you weigh 50. <laughs> Do you think it can hold you? Yeah. Good. All right. Hey, hey, Albert, who's one of the guys working there. How, how many years have you worked at this rope swing? He says, oh, at least four. I'm like, okay, how many people have died in the four years that you've worked this? He's like, None. I'm like, were any seriously injured? He says, no. And then as we're waiting in line, I'm like, hey, you see that guy? Did he die? No. Did he have fun? Yeah. Do you think you're going to be okay? Yeah. But of course, (laughs) the moment of truth is when my son on his own is harnessed up, dangling between heaven and earth with the ability to yell stop at any point. How high will he go and how much fun will he have? And what I'm trying to do is to convince my son that based on evidence and reason, based on past history and reliability, that he doesn't have to be afraid. And this morning, I have the same hope for you. I don't know what you're going through. It might be financial stress. It might be relational stress. Um, I mean, honestly, most of you guys are just like overworked and overstressed and underslept, perhaps like me, overcaffeinated and and life's crazy. And if you stopped long enough, you just might start to have a panic attack thinking about everything that you still have yet to get done this week. And I want to encourage you not to be afraid because there's someone who's strong enough to handle the weight of what you're going through. There's someone who's reliable enough to deal with all the crazies in your life. And his name is God. This morning, my intention is very similar to what Moses in the book of Deuteronomy is after. This morning, we are beginning the end of our series through the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, different words to describe the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is, this is the foundation upon which the entire rest of the Bible and the whole story about Jesus is built, and we are coming to the conclusion. The entire book of Deuteronomy takes place On the last day of Moses' life, it is one grand speech. It is his his final word before his death to a group of people that he cares about and he wants to see them blessed if they would just listen to him. It's important. And I've been saying as we're going through this series that there's this overall structure. So Genesis and Deuteronomy, think of them like the buns on a hamburger or the outside edges, they mirror one another. 
Both of them have a lot to do with going into a special land that God has prepared, about God's promises, about blessing and cursing, about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, about um, the good things. Both of them end with a major figure, Jacob and Genesis and Moses and Deuteronomy, telling the people of Israel what's going to happen to them in the days to come, in the latter days. See, in the middle, we went through Exodus and Numbers, and both of those books are about journeys in the wilderness on the journey to Mount Sinai and the journey from Mount Sinai, and of course Leviticus is right in the middle. So we are coming to the beginning of the end. And Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos in Greek, second law, is given its name because the middle section of the book of Deuteronomy is more rules. And there was much rejoicing. Yes, I can hear your excitement right now. More rules, but it begins with 11 chapters of sermons, and it ends uh, from 29 onwards with more sermons of Moses pleading and encouraging and exhorting the people to listen to God and to trust Him. All right, you have, (laughs) it's his last go at trying to convince people about the nature and character of God, and he's kind of staked everything on it. So, a few things to understand about the book of Deuteronomy. The last thing I want you to know as we're getting started is that Despite most of how it is read, Deuteronomy is a story. It has a narrator who begins the story, who speaks a few times throughout the main narrative of all of Moses' speeches and the rules given, and who concludes the story of Deuteronomy. Those are some things to keep in mind. But as we go through chapters 1 through 3 this morning, here's what to look for. Look for the words, see, or you have seen, or you saw. And look for the words afraid. Specifically, don't. Don't be afraid. All right? We begin, these are the words Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness. In the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazroth, and Dizahab, it is an 11-day journey from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by way of Mount Seir. All right? It takes 11 days to go from Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, same mountain, two different names, 11 days to go to the promised land. <clears throat> In the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, Moses told the Israelites everything Yahweh had commanded him to say to them. All right. I know you guys have been on road trips that have gone badly. But, but not like this. I remember the first time Kara and I with kids went on a trip with Sterling and Courtney before their kids were born. And you know what it's like to go on a road trip by yourself or with just your spouse? Like, oh, what does Google Maps say? Oh, it says it takes 90 minutes. And you know what? To get to the coast. And you get in the car and you drive for 90 minutes and you're at the coast. You know what life is like with kids? You look at Google Maps and it says, oh, it says it should take 90 minutes. And 65 minutes later, you're getting into the car. And 90 minutes after that, you've made it like a couple miles down the road sometimes because there was a blowout and then there was crying and then someone needed to go to the bathroom and then, and then, and then, and then. But I have never in my life, nor I imagine have any of you guys ever been on a road trip that took over 1,000 times longer than it ought to have. That's Israel's story. 11 days Now, the 11th month of the 40th year, we pick up. 
that Moses is going to talk to them. This was after he defeated King Sihon of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and King Og of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth at Edrei. Across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law. All right? The law of Moses. The Hebrew word is, is Torah. It can also mean wisdom or instruction. Law is fine. It includes laws. But remember, the law of Moses starts with 70 chapters of story. And so it's just, it's bigger than what we normally think of as Western Americans about laws. All right? And Moses is going to explain it. He's going to try to make it clear, understandable. He's going through it again. Now, there's one subtle note I would point out, and that's the perspective shift. In my Bible, I'm reading out of today, Numbers concludes on this side, Deuteronomy starts on this side, and a shift takes place between this verse and this verse. Here's the difference. You have the Jordan River, Numbers ends, these are the commands and the ordinances Yahweh commanded the Israelites through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan River across from Jericho. The perspective we are reading from is from being in the wilderness, looking across a river at the promised land. Deuteronomy begins, you can see it in verse 5, across the Jordan, Moses, in the wilderness, in the plains of Moab, Moses begins to teach him this instruction. The perspective of us as readers as are those who are already in the promised land, and it's just a little shift to pay attention to. Moses begins, verse 6, Yahweh our God spoke to us at Horeb. You stayed at this mountain long enough. Resume your journey. Go to the hill country of the Amorites and their neighbors in the Arabah, and the hill country, the Judean hills, the Negev, and the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the Euphrates River. All right, this is the boundaries of the land God told Abram back in Genesis 15. See, remember, pay attention to those words. See, I've set the land before you. Enter and take possession of the land Yahweh swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their future descendants. Now I said to you at that time, I can't bear the responsibility for you on my own. Yahweh your God has so multiplied you that today you are as numerous as the stars of the sky. May Yahweh, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times more and bless you as he promised you. But how can I bear your troubles, your burdens, and disputes by myself? Appoint for yourselves wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will make them your leaders. And you replied to me, what you propose to do is good. And so I took the leaders of your tribes, wise and respected men, and I set them over you as leaders, commanders, for thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens and officers for your tribes. And I commanded your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge rightly between a man and his brother or his resident alien, you know, the immigrant. Don't show partiality when deciding a case. Listen to the small and the great alike. Do not be intimidated. It's not the same words, but it's the same idea. Don't be afraid of anyone because judgment belongs to God. And bring me any case too difficult for you and I will hear it. And at that time, I commanded you about all the things you were to do. All right, we then set out from Horeb and we went across all that great and terrible wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as Yahweh our God had commanded us. And when we reached Kadesh Barnea, I said to you, hey, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which Yahweh our God has given us. See, Yahweh your God has set the land before you, so go up and take possession of it. 
as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Then all of you approached me and you said, "Uh, let's send some men ahead of us so that they may explore the land for us and bring us back a report about the route that we should go up and the cities we will come to. And the plan seemed good to me. And so I selected 12 men from among you, one man for each tribe. And they left. And they went up into the hill country and they came to the valley of Eshkol, great cluster valley, scouting the land. And they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and they carried it down to us. And they brought us back a report. The land that Yahweh our God is giving us is good. But you were not willing to go up. You rebelled against the command of Yahweh your God. You grumbled in your tents and you said, Yahweh brought us out of the land of Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites in order to destroy us because he hates us. These people are so scared of what they just encountered that they think that instead of God rescuing them from Egypt and slavery in order to bless them and do them good, oh, God must have pulled us out of slavery because he's extra mean, extra spiteful. He hates us, and this is a cruel joke. And they call God's entire character into question. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart, saying the people are larger and taller than we are. They are giants. The cities are large, fortified to the heavens. We also saw the descendants of the Anakim there. Well, so I said to you, don't be terrified or afraid of them. Don't be scared. Yahweh, your God, who goes before you, he will fight for you. Just as you saw him do for you in Egypt. And you saw in the wilderness how Yahweh, your God, he carried you as a man carries his son all along the way that you traveled until you reached this place. But in spite of this, you did not trust Yahweh your God, who went before you on the journey to seek out a place for you to camp. He went in the fire by night and in the cloud by day to guide you on the road that you were to travel. And when Yahweh heard your words, he grew angry and he swore an oath. He says, none of these men in this evil generation will see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he will see it. I'll give him and his descendants the land on which he has set foot because he remained loyal to Yahweh. And Yahweh, Moses says, was angry with me also because of you. It's all your fault, he says. You will not enter there either. Joshua, the son of Nun, who attends you, he will enter it. Encourage him, for he will enable Israel to inherit it. And your children, whom you said would be plunder, your sons, who don't get no good from evil, will enter there. And I'm going to give them the land, and they're going to take possession of it. But you're to turn back and head for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And you answered me, oh, we, we've sinned against Yahweh. We're going to go up and fight just as Yahweh our God commanded us. And then each of you put on his weapons of warfare, and you thought it would be easy to go up into the hill country? And Yahweh said to me, well, tell him, don't go up and fight. I'm not with you to keep you from being defeated by your enemies. And so I spoke to you, but you didn't listen. You rebelled against Yahweh's command, and you defiantly went up into the hill country. And you know what? Then the Amorites who lived there, they came out against you, and they chased you like a swarm of bees, and they routed you from Seir as far as Hormah. And when you returned, you wept before Yahweh. But you know what? He didn't listen to your requests or pay attention to you. 
And for this reason, you stayed in Kadesh as long as you did. Here is why an 11-day road trip took 40 years. It's your fault. You didn't listen. So what Moses is about to do is now give him a few case study examples, all right? It's going to say this next leg of the journey, we're going around a bunch of people, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and he's going to show case studies of all the people that God has given land to, all the people that God has driven out giants for, all right? So after a while, chapter two, then we turned back and we headed for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as Yahweh had told me. And we traveled around the hill country for Seir for many days. And Yahweh then said to me, oh, you've been traveling around this hill country long enough. Turn north and command the people. You're about to travel through the territory of your brothers, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. All right, Israel is a nation. The guy, Israel, who founded the nation, his brother was named Esau. All right, so these are uh, families of, that came out of uh, two brothers. Now, they're going to be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not provoke them. I'm not going to give you any of their land, not even a foot of it, because I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his possession. You may purchase food from them so that you may eat. You may buy water from them to drink because Yahweh your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through this immense wilderness. Yahweh your God has been with you. This past 40 years, you have lacked nothing. And so we bypassed our brothers, the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir. We turned away from the Arabah road and from Elath and Ezion Geber, and we traveled along the road to the wilderness of Moab. Moab is like a distant cousin to Israel and to Edom. Yahweh said to me, show no hostility towards Moab. Do not provoke them uh, to battle. I'm not going to give you any of their land as a possession because I've given R as a possession to the descendants of Lot. At this point, the narrator breaks in to tell us some useful information. He says the Emim, a great and numerous people as tall as the Anakim, had previously lived there. All right, there were giants in, the, in that land. They were also regarded as Rephaim, giants like the Anakim, though the Moabites, they called them Emim. The Horites had previously lived in Seir, but the descendants of Esau drove them out, destroying them completely and settling in their place just as Israel did in the land of its possession that Yahweh gave them, all right? This is a voice from the distant future saying, hey, by the way, the Edomites drove out the giants from their land that God gave them. Moses picks up again. Now, Yahweh says, now get up and cross the Zered Valley. So we cross the Zered Valley. The time we spent traveling from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley was 38 years until the entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp, as Yahweh had sworn to them. God's promises do come true. Indeed, Yahweh's hand was against them to eliminate them from the camp until they had all perished. And when the fighting men had died among the people, Yahweh spoke to me. Today, you're going to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you get close to the Ammonites, Moabites and Ammonites, uh, Moab and Amnon were two brothers, or cousins actually. When you get there, don't show any hostility to the Ammonites. Don't provoke them. I'm not going to give you any of the Ammonites' land as a possession. I've given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. Narrator jumps back and he says, This too used to be regarded as the land of the Rephaim. The Rephaim lived there previously, although the Ammonites called them Zanzamim, which is just a fun word. A great and numerous people, tall as the Anakim. And Yahweh destroyed the Rephaim at the advance of the Ammonites, so they drove them out and they settled in their place. 
This was just as he had done for the descendants of Esau, who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they drove them out, and they lived in their place until now. And the Kaphtarim, who would later become the Philistines, who came from Kaphtor, destroyed the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza and settled in their place. All right. Esau, Moab, Ammon. Now, Yahweh also said, Get up, move out, and cross the Arnon Valley. See, I have handed the Amorites, King Sihon of Heshbon, and his land over to you. Begin to take possession of it. Engage him in battle. Today, I'm going to begin to put the fear and dread of you on the peoples everywhere under heaven. They will hear the report about you. They will tremble and be in anguish because of you. 38 years ago, you heard a report that made you tremble and be in anguish. Right now, everyone else is going to hear a report, and they're going to be scared spitless because of you. And so I sent messengers with an offer of peace to King Sihon of Heshbon from the wilderness of Kedemoth, saying, Let us travel through your land. We're going to keep strictly to the highway. We won't turn to the right or the left. You can sell us food in exchange for silver so we can eat. Give us water for silver so we may drink. Only let us travel through on foot, just as the descendants of Esau, who lived in Seir, did for us, and the Moabites, who lived in Ar, until we cross the Jordan into the land Yahweh our God is giving us. All right, words of peace. We, we don't want trouble. We're just passing through to go to the land that God is giving to us. But King Sihon of Heshbon would not let us travel through his land. Yahweh your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to hand him over to you as is now taking place. What God did to Pharaoh in Egypt, God is now doing to King Sihon. And then Yahweh said to me, See, I have begun to give Sihon and his land to you. Begin to take possession of it. What did that look like? Well, it looks like Sihon being the aggressor. So Sihon and his whole army came out against us for battle at Jahaz, and Yahweh our God handed him over to us. And we defeated him, his sons, and his whole army. At that time, we captured all his cities. We completely destroyed the people of every city, including the women and children. We left no survivors, and we took only the livestock and the spoil from the cities we captured as plunder for ourselves. And there was no city that was inaccessible to us, from a roar on the rim of the Arnon Valley, along with the city and the valley, even as far as Gilead. Yahweh our God gave everything to us. But you did not go near the Ammonites' land, all along the bank of the Jabbok River, the cities of the hill country, or any place Yahweh our God had forbidden. So I wanted to finish that paragraph, but we're not going to bypass the fact of like men, women, and children being slaughtered because most of us have a hard time with that. You know, we live in a country that about 20, well, what, September 11th, 2001, so 22 years ago, some people motivated by religious ideology crashed planes into uh, major structures and symbols of our American Western nation. And so when we hear about people in the name of God showing up to seemingly murder the innocent men, women, and children, we have a hard time. Now, there's other points to mention, but I'm going to go ahead and recommend a book I think treats a number of these issues pretty well. It's called The Skeletons in God's Closet. It's by a guy named Joshua Ryan Butler, and it's about hell, holy war, and judgment. And here's the thing. As difficult of a time as we have for it, I think Josh... I've got a few issues, so this is not a wholesale endorsement, but it is a great thing to have a conversation over, showing how these questions and these things that we have a really hard time with, when we actually think about them, these are, this is good news. This is part of the gospel, hell, judgment, and holy war. And if you want to know why, come talk to me afterwards. But 
I just got to acknowledge, like, this is really uncomfortable for us and requires a much longer conversation and nuance. But I will also say this. This is a singular instance in the history of the people of Israel. Never again has any uh, Yahweh follower after the conquest of the land of Canaan, nor any uh, person in the name of Jesus ever been told, go kill a bunch of people. In fact, Jesus says quite the opposite. All right, so we are not being invited to have a holy war ourselves. And I want to be really careful because these texts have been used um, as recently in my own mind as the American invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq post 9-11. Texts from Deuteronomy and and Joshua have been used to justify the invasion of a massive military force into a less populated uh, country. And I think that's just wrong. So, Again, the book is The Skeletons in God's Closet. Um, and, and just as a, as a side note, totally a side note, um, I'm, I'm here because I believe this is true. And I believe this makes the most sense of that Christianity provides better answers to the questions of life and the universe and, and meaning than any other system of belief. It's not without its struggles, but I'd, I'd rather deal with its struggles than anything else. So if it doesn't make sense, inquire, investigate, search out carefully. If at any point you feel like, oh, this is a sham and people are trying to pull the wool over my eyes and this is just false, then stop believing it. All right? Investigate it. We believe this to be true and justifiable. I don't have answers for everything, but I have what I believe good reasons for, for believing. And so sometimes, in light of all of the really good evidence elsewhere. Sometimes you come to a difficult passage and you go, even though I don't understand, this is part of the story and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit and just wrestle with this tension. All right, side note over. But I will say, if you were going to read this sympathetically, know that for Moses and the Israelites, reading the conquest of your enemies is going to feel like, like the, the Super Bowl's winner sports team recounting all of the tough teams they beat over the course of the season. Like, this is good news. If you're an Israelite, you're, you're hearing this and you're like, yeah, this is awesome. And uh, that's just the name of the game. All right, we then turned and we went up the road to Bashan and King Og of Bashan came out against us with his whole army to do battle at Edrei. But Yahweh said to me, do not fear him. I've handed him over to you along with his whole army and his land. Do to him as you did to King Sihon of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon. And so Yahweh, our God, also handed over King Og of Bashan and his whole army to us. And we struck him down until there was no survivor left. And we captured all his cities at that time. And there wasn't a city that we didn't take from them. Sixty cities, the entire region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. And all these were fortified with high walls and gates and bars besides a large number of rural villages. And we completely destroyed them. As we had done to King Sihon of Heshbon, destroying the men, women, and children of every city, but we took all the livestock and the spoil of the cities as plunder for ourselves. See, at that time, we took the land from the two Amorite kings across the Jordan, from the Arnon Valley as far as Mount Hermon, which the Sidonians call Syrian and the Amorites call Sinir, all the cities of the plateau, Gilead, Bashan, as far as Selica and Edrei, cities of Og's kingdom and Bashan. Again, the narrator Only King Og of Bashan was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. His bed was made of iron, which is still pretty cool, even today. Isn't it in Rabbah of the Ammonites? 
It is 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide by a standard measure. Og was a giant, and we kicked his butt. This is awesome. You can, you know, and the narrator is saying, if you want proof at the time of, of this writing, he says, you can go down to the local capital of our nearby country, and you can see this dude's bed. We should not have been able to beat him. And God gave us a victory. Like, this is awesome. So at that time, we took possession of the land, and I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the area extending from Aurora by the Arnon Valley and half the hill country of Gilead along with its cities. I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh the rest of Gilead and Albation, the kingdom of Og, and the entire region of Argob, the whole territory of Bashan, used to be called the land of the Rephaim, the giant people, is my best like, translation of Rephaim. Now Jared, descendant of Manasseh, took over the entire region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Maacathites, and he called Bashan by his own name, Jer's villages, as it is to today. I gave Gilead to Machir, and I gave to the Rumanites and Gadites the area extending from Gilead to the Arnon Valley. The middle of the valley was a border, and up to the Jabbok River, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah and the Jordan were also borders from Kinnereth as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. All right, everyone take a big yawn. Oh, that was a lot of words you don't recognize. All right, this isn't land that you know. If we were talking about the, the border that goes between Troutdale, you know, out, up to, uh, let's say, Scapoose, down to uh, Woodburn, and then over to Malala, like, that's your jam, all right? You know these places. And the Bible, like, my Bible has, you know, pictures and maps, but those are new editions, they weren't originally published. Like these words provide the boundaries and the location of these are real places at a real time, at a real place in history. All right? And just to let you know, like these are the places that God gave to us because he conquered the enemies before us. And areas outside of that don't belong to us. Some of them belong to the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites. All right? So it's meaningful, but if I'm honest, it's pretty boring. <laughs> okay? But we went through it. Now we get to verse 18. He says, I commanded you at that time. Yahweh your God has given you this land to possess. All your valiant men will cross over in battle formation ahead of your brothers, the Israelites, and your wives, your dependents, your livestock. I know that you have a lot of livestock. will remain in the cities I've given you until Yahweh gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land Yahweh your God is giving them across the Jordan. And then each of you may return to his possession I have given you. Now I commanded Joshua at that time, your own eyes have seen everything Yahweh your God has done to these two kings. Yahweh your God will do the same to all the kingdoms you're about to enter. Don't be afraid of them because Yahweh your God fights for you. And at that time, I begged Yahweh. I said, oh, Yahweh God, you have begun only begun to show your greatness and your strong hand to your servant. What God is there in heaven or on earth who can perform the deeds and mighty acts like yours? So please, please let me cross over and see the beautiful land on the other side of the Jordan, that good hill country in, in Lebanon. But Yahweh was angry with me because of you, and he would not listen to me. And Yahweh said to me, that's enough. Do not speak to me again about this matter. Go to the top of Pisgah, Look to the west, north, south, and east and see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross the Jordan. Commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. He will cross over ahead of the people 
and enable them to inherit this land that you will see. And so we stayed in the valley facing Beth Peor. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Towards the end of Deuteronomy, Moses will say that every seven years, assemble everyone in the entire nation and read at least the book of Deuteronomy before everyone. So, God's word is meant to be read, and this is much longer than we normally go through, but I'm like, I think, I think that it matters. Now, thanks for bearing with me. Did you see? Did you hear? Moses is doing what I tried to do for my son Theodore. You know, that, that cable will hold you. Look at all those people who've had a successful trip. Moses is doing the same thing. Don't be afraid. You saw what God did to Egypt. Yeah, he's going to do the same. Oh, but you were afraid. Well, let me give you a few case studies. Remember the Edomites? Yeah, God actually gave them their inheritance. It turns out that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is also the God of all creation who is blessing other nations independently. You didn't even know this was going on. But God drove out giants in the land before them, and they're having a great time in the land that God gave them. And the, the Moabites, you don't get their land. Why? Because there were giants in that land. And I drove the giants out before the Moabites, and they're having a great time in the land I gave them. And the Ammonites, you know what? The Ammonites, there were giants in that land, and I judged the giants, and we pushed them out, and the Ammonites are enjoying this good land I gave to them. Oh, and here are two other giant kings, Sihon and Og, that I conquered before you, and some of Israel is enjoying this good land. So when we come to now your turn to cross the Jordan River and to go into a land of giants, let me just tell you, I've done it against Egypt and for the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites. And here on the east side of the Jordan, I'm going to do it for you on the west side of the Jordan. You can trust me. Don't be afraid. I'm going to fight for you. So motivate Joshua. So you can give them all the evidence, but the time will come where they're going to be sitting there looking up at these big, tall, strong people who will crush them unless God shows up. They tried at one time to do it in their own power. It did not go well. They got their butts handed to them, and they came back and cried to God, and God didn't listen because, of course, they didn't listen to God in the first place. Moses is, like, Moses is going to die at the end of the speech, and he's just like, can I get it through to you? that Yahweh is worth listening to and obeying. He will fight for you. You don't have to be afraid. And so it would be easy for me at this point to pivot and say, family of grace, you don't have to be afraid because Yahweh will fight for you. But I'm a little bit leery about using that language. For instance, as I'm meditating upon this passage, I show up here on this property early in the morning to discover that there are people who have invaded the land and camped out and are doing certain things involving certain powerful, potent drugs that ought not to be done upon our property. And so I'm going to take them off the land. But they're not Canaanites. They're just people who need the grace of Jesus. And if I treat them like the enemy... If I treat them like people that God wants to judge, I will not show Jesus to them, and, and I will be misreading and misappropriating the scriptures. They're just people. <laughs> and so, yes, they need to get off the property, and I can also be kind. So I want to be careful when it comes to saying, Yahweh fights for you, All right, and, and that you don't have to be afraid. But you don't have to be afraid. 
So if I was going to elevate it from this level and bring it up one, what God is telling the Israelites through Moses is to not let anything stand between them listening to and obeying Yahweh. It doesn't matter how scary those people are. Trust me, listen to me, obey my commands, and you will be blessed. And at that point, I feel like I can carry this over into your lives. Family of grace, do not let anything stand between you listening to and obeying Yahweh your God. See, when you get to the New Testament, it was interesting to look up that phrase, don't be afraid. It is repeated a lot in the Bible. And both Jesus and the author of Hebrews actually use it. They say, don't, don't be afraid. And the question is, of what? And what are we supposed to do about it? So, and, and, and the interesting thing was to know that both Jesus and the author of Hebrews actually use it in the same context to say the same thing. So here's Jesus. This is from Luke chapter 12. And he talks about not being anxious or worrying. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about the clothes you're going to wear. He says, the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things. Your father knows that you need them. I'm in Luke chapter 12, verse 31, for those who are turning pages right now. Jesus says, seek God's kingdom. Like, seek the promised land, the good thing that God wants to bring into your life. Seek God's kingdom. These things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. God wants to bless you. Don't be afraid. Here's what you should do. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Jesus says God has good things to bring into your life. Don't be afraid. Be generous. Give your money away. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, says in verse 5, 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have because he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man or giants do to me? See, Jesus and the author of Hebrews identifies that one of the things that we as people are scared of is, is security. And the thing that we look for for security is in money. It's in stuff. It's in possessions. This is where we find safety and trust. And Jesus says, I would call you to a different life, but you're going to have to trust that God is going to take care of you and not your own stuff, not your own income, your bank account, your investments, not your own power. You've got to trust that God is going to take care of you enough that you can be generous to love the people around you. This is a way to not be afraid. And so, family of grace, I have two, two offerings, I guess, for you to suggestions of responding, of what might it look like for you to not let anything stand between you and listening to and obeying God's voice. Okay, one is listening, one is obeying, one is loving God, one is loving your neighbor. Okay, one will be reading scripture, the other will be giving generously of your money. One involves your time, and the other one involves your treasure. Because 
Here's the thing. For the Israelites, they spent 40 years. They wasted 40 years in the wilderness because they weren't willing to listen to God. And they, they just wasted their time. I see a lot of Christians, people who, who claim to be Jesus followers, wasting their life because they are living for things that ultimately do not matter and they have no time for God in their lives. I talked to a guy who showed up. I, I've told this story before, so forgive me for repeating it, but I'm going to repeat it. He's a contractor, and he was a Christian. He even went to Bible college, and then at a certain point, he's married with young kids, and he realized, I can earn $2 more an hour by working on the weekends, Sundays included. And that was 20 years ago. And for him, just the daily pressure to provide well for his family, you know, that you had more income, so you bought a better house, and then you have a larger payment to make, and, and you want to have a nice car. But then, you know, the kids are outgrowing their sneakers, and they just broke your computer, and then your water heater busted, and the next thing you know, you're striving and working so hard to make ends meet all the time that you have no time to show up and listen and obey God. And for many of us, it is the exact same thing. We wake up in the day, and the first thing we grab is our smartphone, and we're checking the notifications, and the next thing we know, we've got to get dressed and showered before the kids wake up, and we've got to make it to work. And we're hustling, and we're chewing through the day, and we come home, and we're totally spent and exhausted, and we want nothing more than just to, like, veg in front of the TV or smartphone device until we go to bed. Or maybe we have a project, and we have gone the entire day, and maybe the entire week, and maybe the entire month, without ever actually attending to the fact that God is speaking to us through the scriptures. So this, this is challenge number one. Read the Bible. It, it's simple. But the reality is, is that most of us, for whatever reason, are finding our lives too busy. We're attending to other things. There are things that we think are more pressing and more urgent than to actually hear the fact that God has spoken to humanity through his word. We, in the biblical word of what being afraid is, we're afraid of something else other than ignoring God. So read the Bible. Now, life is a reality. Things are really busy. I don't want to put a heavy burden on you that you cannot bear. My wife has four children who, as young as they are, have managed to collude in perfect unison to rob her of every spare moment in her life. So how is, my God, how is my wife going to make time to attend to God? And for her, she set up the practice of no makeup without scripture. So she puts on an audio Bible where she puts her makeup on in her morning. Other people say no phone before scripture. All right, you treat, treat God's word like food. It would be nice if we could sit down and have a meal, but sometimes we're just pulling our stuff that you know, was warm in the microwave five minutes ago, and now it's cold, but that's all the time we have when we shove it into our mouth and we go about our business. Maybe that's what you need to do with God's word. Get it into you because he has spoken, because he matters, because attending to him is more important than attending to all the busyness and the craziness of life. Don't let anything stand between you and listening to and attending God's word. That's, that's the scriptures now. The next one is way harder. Because it's money. Because this is where we find security. Like, admittedly, having a nice, cushy margin in your bank account is really great. And some of you don't. And that's all the scarier. Because you, you know, most of us are like one medical emergency away from financial collapse. Um, some of us are like 
half a paycheck away from financial collapse. And it is so scary when someone says to give away money. We, we resist it because we say, I'm not safe unless I can be secure. And money is what gives me security. I talked to a guy, we'll call him Freddie. Freddie was a guy camping out on our, you know, out front here along Burnside in the morning, and we got into a conversation about Jesus. And, and Freddie lives in a tent and is addicted to drugs. So this applies to Freddie as well as to the rest of you, that God has given us enough to be generous. But the way that we apply that is going to look really differently. For Freddie, what he needs to do is to quit spending what little money he can get his hands on on drugs. And the way I would suggest that him responding to the ways of Jesus is, dude, you need to, you need to get treatment. You need to be willing to yield the drugs which right now provide security and relief from the stress and the pain of life. Admittedly, they are doing you a service, but they're killing you in the process. You need to trust that Jesus loves you and that God is good, that he doesn't hate you, and that the pain that you initially suffer in order to obey and follow him will yield to greater blessings than you can possibly imagine. So you got to get clean. you got to get stable. Then you're going to get a job. And then you're going to live beneath your means. And he says, what is that? I said, that's when you spend less money than you bring in so you have a little bit to bless the people around you. All right, there's another woman. She works for a nonprofit in Portland. And she said five years ago, she was in the basement of this church because she was on the streets homeless. Now she's stable. She's in an apartment. She has a job. And her work now is getting other people off the streets. All right, that's the goal. That God has given us enough that we can be generous. All right, for other of us, this is going to take a sacrifice. What do you have to give up in order to have something to give? Well, you have to have the recognition that God will take care of you and the trust. You have to trust that though this feels like death, this will bring life. And then for some of us, it might mean that we're going to have to give away a comfort. It might mean that we have to sell something. You know, we buy our possessions, we own things, and then the things own us. So maybe there's an exchange. But don't let anything come between you and obeying God. Not even the love of God. See, Moses, at the very end of our passage, he says, Hey, God... I really like you, so can I have a free pass? (laughs) Because I really want to go over into that promised land. And God says, no. God loves Moses. He cherishes Moses. Moses is his guy. There's, you know, until that point in history, there's never been someone as awesome as Moses. And God says, no, Moses, despite the fact that you love me and you want good things, for you, obedience right now is to stay on this side. I have a plan for you. So, again, whatever it is, and it, it's challenging and it's scary, but, but here's the thing. God is, God is trustworthy. Did you see what he did? Do you see how good he is? Do you see how many battles he's fought and how he's taken care of his people? Do you see how he's provided for his people like a, a father carrying his children in the wilderness? You ha- they, he gave them food to eat. He gave them water to drink. He gave them clothes to wear. He's trustworthy. They saw it. I'm reading you the scripture so now you guys can see it. Now the question is, what will you do? Like my son, I explain the cable, I explain the harness, but when he's hanging there and the ladder has fallen, like it's all, it's up to him now. And it's up to you. And so I'll conclude this morning with words some of you are very familiar with. Words of a, 
an Israelite who lived hundreds of years after Moses and the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness. His name was King David, and he wrote what many understand is the, the 23rd Psalm. It goes like this. It says, Yahweh is my shepherd. And so I don't lack anything. And he makes me lie down by green pastures. He forces me to take time off. He leads me by still waters. He gives me food to eat, water to drink. He restores my soul. He gives me life. He guides me like God did for the Israelites through the wilderness. He guides me on the right paths, paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or for the Israelites, I'm going through a great and terrible wilderness, or I'm going through situations where I think I cannot make it, I'm going to die, and we're doomed. I don't have to fear any evil because his presence is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. He fights my battles for me and will protect me. And he anoints my head with oil and my cup runs over. It turns out I have an abundance and I can be generous. Now surely God's goodness and mercy will chase me down wherever I go. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, would you help us to trust you? To believe that because we have you, we will lack nothing. That you are good and great and glorious And so we can take a day off, so we don't have to hustle quite as hard, so that we have enough margin in our lives to give generously to those who need. Maybe they're the people who are in Maui who have lost their homes due to fires, and we can just send a little bit that way. Or to our our neighbor down the street who just doesn't have any food. God, would you help us to understand that we have been blessed in order that we may be a blessing to others. But God, this requires us to trust you, that you're going to look after us. Because God, if we have to look after ourselves, then we have to hold on to everything we get our hands on. Free our hearts from the love of money. Free our hearts from the love of our time and the things that we pursue and help us, Holy Spirit, to make margin in our calendar and our bank accounts. To attend to the voice of God and to love the people that God has brought into our life. Because, Father, unless you help us, we can't do it. But because you have promised to help us, may we do this in faith and in obedience and trust and find your blessing in an abundant life on the other side. In Christ's name, amen.